Welcome to Dug Too Deep, the officially unofficial podcast for the Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking feedback for season one, episode eight. It's the season finale. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to go ahead and guess that we got double the amount of feedback on this finale. We did. The the poison pill is that so many of people's takes were completely superseded by the action of, you know, episode eight, which was, I think, okay, um, far more, far, far more revealing than people were expecting it. Because, like, I was, like, hmm. hoping for some clarity on the stranger and who Sauron was and maybe the written, I, you know, we essentially got massive clarity on Sauron, massive clarity on the stranger. Although I do think they're being a little sneaky there too. Um, and, and we got the forging mm-hmm. of the rings. So like, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people speculating this stuff being pushed, pushed off to season two or going a different way. Just, you know, got, uh, got hit by a pyroclastic cloud of episode eight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It feels like it, I, I'm not questioning like, Oh, where, what are the mysteries that, you know, we've been left with this season? It's more like what now? You know, yes. we've we've forged the rings. Mount Doom is created. Uh, Sauron's going there, and uh, we have a wizard on the loose. What now? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a good place for the the show to be in. And it's, and mm-hmm. you know, it's. I think it's positive that uh, I was expecting it to continue to drag its feet on these mysteries, and the fact mm-hmm. that largely they seem to not be wanting to keep that going is, I think, a huge plus. Um, but yeah, we did get a lot of feedback. Uh, so let's get right to it. Dug too deep at ballmove.com is where you want to send feedback. This is relevant because we will have a final wrap up podcast where we're going to talk about, um, you know, all, all of our feelings, uh, uh, where where it's going, consider some more feedback, uh, et cetera, just to kind of set us on course. And also, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to do some digging because I don't know when we're expecting the show to come back. Yeah, I suspect because of its ambition and scale and the amount of post processing it requires, we're not going to see it until 2024. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Maybe they've got some kind of assembly line, Peter Jackson style, continually filming. We knew we were going to do, you know, like I maybe this this season two is well underway. I, I don't have a, a sense of that. So that's certainly something I'm going to want to talk about. First up is Dante. I agree with most of your critiques, though not as vehemently. I'm still enjoying the show, and I'm going to watch it in upcoming seasons. I do have some thoughts, though. I don't think the insinuation is really that Celeborn, which you'll recall is Galadriel's husband, is dead. Mm -hmm. I don't think he'll be coming back from heaven or anything like that. She mentions that he he left for war at the end of the Second Age, but then so did she. She never saw him again because of the darkness. Revenge took over her, and she never returned home. She abandoned him. Uh, she's slow hmm. to talk about it because of the shame and guilt weigh heavily on everyone's shoulders in this episode. She lost him to the war because she lost herself. I think that's interesting and her starting point to understand and realize the error of her ways. Having a lovely, loving reunion with her husband may help bring her back to the light, not to make her stop being a soldier, but to help her resist and come off that ledge of darkness. And I'm into that. Uh, Jim, a lot of people were had this kind of similar take that like, why are you guys getting so upset about Celeborn being dead or Celeborn not being established or whatever, whatever Um, he could just be missing. He could be a prisoner of war. He could. And I I think these are valid points, but it it doesn't really change my mind and how they handle it. How about you? Hmm. Uh, It's impossible for me to get mad about it because I don't have a dog in that fight. Right. Like, 
I don't think I got mad about Killiborn not being alive or whatever. Uh, I think this is a very good possibility here um, that she is feeling guilty about what she did. She doesn't. She doesn't like. Oh, mourn for the husband she lost. She's more like, I went off on this damn fool idealistic crusade, and because of it, I haven't seen my husband in a very long time. That makes a lot more sense than I, I guess. Based on what I what I understand from the Lord that he is actually like dead or in Balnor or something like that. So. Yeah, I, with to it. me, I don't give a shit about the lore and I apologize hmm. if I gave that that, you know, I, I was saying that, like, I think some lore purists will be upset by it. But like, I I don't care. I think that it was just it was handled clunky that there was. I think it would have been better if they had established the fact that she had a husband that she considered lost during the war instead of the single minded focus on Finrod. And then when she's trying to, you know, uh, bond with this teenager and he asks her if you've lost anyone, she says her brother right away. We're expecting that. And then she trails off and hesitates and says, also, my husband. I just think that's a clunky way to introduce that subplot. Hmm. You know, there could have been other where. You know, and like, well, she's not talking about it because she's embarrassed or ashamed. And like, I don't think that's I don't think that's indicative of her interior mind. I don't think that she's embarrassed or ashamed about her single minded devotion to this destruction. I think she thinks she's self-righteous and right, even down to the latest episode. So, Hmm. like, I don't know why she wouldn't be paying on. And also, I don't think Celeborn is lost like Galadriel was lost. Like Galadriel wasn't lost. Like Gilgalad knew where she was and what she was doing at all times. Probably was in fairly regular contact with her, right? Like I don't think she was like just fucked off for she 3000 years. Yeah, yeah. And never came back and never sent back message to the king and never did like I I don't eh, think that's what yeah. happened. Or is this guy fucked off at the beginning of the first age, I think? And has never been heard of since? Like I think he's dead. Hmm. He's MIA can presume KIA, right? I I have no idea. I, I don't know anything about him. Yeah. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then I would expect her to talk about it in a different kind of way, you know. And and like everyone's hmm. saying, like, oh, he's just missing, and she he, she never says he's dead. But I feel it's pretty clear that Galadriel thinks he's dead. That's what my so like, yeah. I I don't give a shit that Teleporno is dead or not dead. He's going to come back to life. It's just, I, I don't think they did a really good job of establishing it in our minds. And it's almost like an afterthought, like, Oh fuck, we want Celeborn to come back at some point. Oh hmm. shit. We haven't even established him. And we're like seven episodes into this thing. Ah, you know, and they, they did this scene. So, hmm. okay. Um, Aaron from San Francisco says, good news. I'm very entertained by T-Rop and look forward to each new episode. Bad news. I just can't take the show seriously anymore after the whole volcano thing. I was honestly disappointed that episode seven didn't feature a special guest appearance by Jeff Bezos as Eru Arugula Aluvatar. I imagine him flying in on a bra on a copper penis shaped rocket ship (laughs) and stopping the volcano with a purposeful crash landing. He could emerge triumphant from the smoke and ash, spaceman helmet tucked under one arm, smiley arrow face, Amazon logo emblazoned across his flight suit, smoking crater with the back end of a rocket ship sticking out the top of the background. Um, I sincerely hope they stick to landing in the season finale and make a great comeback for season two because I want to love this show. Well, they did it for us. Like, I'm I'm back to being pretty enthusiastic about the show and 
it, but it's all going to come down to like what lessons have they learned oh sure yeah you can't you can't make the same mistakes in season two and expect me to tolerate it <laughs> yeah yeah it's one thing it's like this is a learning experience probably some covid stuff in there you know they had very inexperienced showrunners which you know is what it what it is what it is Let's see how they do in season two. Um, but I'm glad they're able to get a little bit of momentum going in because it was looking pretty grim. Looking pretty grim there at the end of episode seven for me. I do want Jeff Bezos to show up in this show. That's that's my only wish for season two is that Jeff Bezos will show up. People don't know this, but he does have big Harfoot, hairy type feet. Like in real life, that's just the kind of feet he has. So if they can just put him in front of the camera, shrink him down, you know, digitally... Uh, he'd fit right in. See, I was going to go with, he looks like Gollum with a better dental plan. Yeah. Yeah. So he could do, he could do that thing as, as well. It, I, what, <laughs> do you think that Bezos is too good to just play an uncredited orc? Uh, in the background. Probably. I think that'd be funny. And look, yeah. he never went on the expanse. He like did a personal campaign to save the expanse and spent a whole bunch of mo- probably his own money. Uh, to do it and he was never on that show so I can't see him showing up here sorry I'm disappointed I'm just as disappointed as you are let's move on to Randy from Jersey says I'm still impressed the production values of the rings of power and there were definitely some good scenes and character interactions this episode but I'm kind of surprised you guys didn't go a little harder on the plot contrivances inconsistencies Hmm. Uh, we're talking about episode seven, I believe, or no episode six, actually. Ah. What happened to your wife? She drowned. So is the sea always right? Uh, I mean, that's a joke thing yeah, you said, but that. like, it's one of those things indicative where I feel like there was people building the world and like doing things like, oh, what are some things that make Numenorean culture distinct? And then there was another group of people that were writing the plot. And those people hmm. didn't necessarily always shake hands and and tell each other what they're working on. Because you're right. The sea's always right. Well, if El- if, if uh, <laughs> Ellen Deal's wife drowned, then mm-hmm. I don't know. The sea itself is rejecting her and her elf friend ways. Or maybe she was an elf fiend. Mm. I don't know. Uh, didn't the villagers leave their village and go to the elven fortress because it was safer and more easily defended? And then the first thing to do is abandon the fortress and go back to the village. And the place to make their last stand is a tavern? Does any of this make sense militarily? There's some cool moments no. during that battle if you didn't think too hard about any of it. <sighs> yeah, I... I mean, I get that the fort had the secret button that you could push that would send the tower down to kill everyone around it, and that was a really neat trick. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's weird that they were saying like, Oh, we all got, we got, it's, it's almost like they, they, they playing this out to fake out the audience. Like the audience was the orc army and they're like, we got to misinform them. So they fall into our trap. It's weird from our perspective. We didn't know what was going on. And again, I think this is indicative of the show's reliance of let's surprise and shock people rather mm-hmm. than do something straightforward and clear from a motivation standpoint. This is just like a, in very small, microcosm yeah i mean i will say the the equation had changed at that point right like they went up to that tower thinking they'd have the full support of the village to defend and then half the village left to go support sauron or who they thought was sauron um so now they they have half the people they thought they would the other side has that other half that left 
I think they're just thinking, well, we're screwed. We need some desperate play here to maybe kill them all. And that was the tower collapse. Well, but crucially, also, they might have known they were screwed when they got to the village. Bronwyn is the one that says we got to go to the tower. Aaron Deer mm-hmm. gets there later and is like, oh, you're here at the test. So, like, maybe he has got a different plan. And, and so I, yeah. But I mean, the I, best plan again, is still to stay in the tower because, like, I look at that, the, the, the road up to that tower, and that is highly defensible. Uh, there's like no way those orcs get up there if they don't want them to. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing a devil's advocate, but I really I think that you've you got it right on here, Randy, that like you have every man, woman and child that's strong enough to pull back a bow and mm-hmm. throw rocks just rain down hell on those orcs on the long winding. Yeah. And then at the very last minute, you have, uh, you know, maybe Aaron Deer stay to blow the tower to take out as many as why everyone right. else heads down the other side of the mountain to some other refuge. Um, yeah, the way they did just it come up there. Yeah, the way they didn't, it's like I, they should have sold that tower dearly and then mm-hmm. sca- scapered off to somewhere else. But again, I don't know the map. I don't know the terrain. This was not terrible. Um, he no. does have another point. Why didn't the giant orc that attack Aaron Deer have a weapon? Aaron Deer backs up to him. He should have got his throat slip. Instead, the orc just tosses him around for five minutes. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Why doesn't this orc have like an axe or a sword or a mace or something? Because it seems like uh, if he'd have just gone over there and caved Aaron Deer's head in, it'd be all over. <laughs> That's why he doesn't have one, because <laughs> it would but, be all over. They don't want him to. Okay, so here's the other thing: is like this is a big time trope. Like, how many times have you seen mm-hmm. the hero being thrown around by the strong man and ragdoll him for a bit, but mm-hmm. not really? You know, this is the predator. You know, the predator doesn't just kill Arnold Schwarzenegger. He has to like really beat the hell out of him, throw him around a bunch first. Doesn't use as well. Like at some point, you got to be like, okay, here are the Western civilization tropes, and they're just as powerful mm-hmm. as like Eastern animation. You know, like when a boy gets a nosebleed when he's talking to a pretty girl in anime. That's stupid and dumb, and it happens all the time. But it's the way they tell stories, right? So I, I try not to criticize things being tropey unless they come across as hacky. And I've seen very well done versions of this um, that I've quite enjoyed. It's so, and I, I even enjoy, enjoyed this one to be tr- to be honest. I thought it was a pretty cool, pretty cool scene. Uh, here's the here's a here's here's a, a, a corker right here. I'm still not sure how Galadriel and the Numenorean cavalry knew exactly what village to go to. As far as we know, Halbrin just told Galadriel that the Southlands were attacked by orcs. The Southland is a big place, and yet they ride exactly where they're needed at exactly the right time. How does information get mm-hmm. to Numenor? Um, yeah, because like if you remember the episode before, they were talking to Halbrand, and it's like, where you know, like where are mm-hmm. we going? And he points to a place on the map, which I assumed was the tower, and said, "Well, this is obviously where the people. If I were the people, I'd fall back to this position." But. Numenor was riding like at max speed towards this village in particular. Oh, maybe it's on the way. Yeah, maybe like the, the the road to the tower also leads through the village. So they just well now to that show we know that a battle going. Halbrand is Sauron. Is there a possibility mm-hmm. that Sauron and Adar are working together? Because sure. It, it seems like they're antagonists at this point because I think everything tracks out. Like Air, uh, Adar, Sauron says, did you recognize me? And Adar says, no, I don't. 
Adar mm-hmm. says he killed Sauron. I think he thinks he did. Sauron says he was driven off by orcs. Like, all this stuff is strictly true. So I don't think they're working together, but that would also be one easy way to resolve that. You know, they're just working together. So Yeah, that's I mean, even if they're not charge. working together, like, Sauron knows what's going on over there, and he's going to use this as an opportunity to embed himself in the, the good graces of the elves um, and get those yeah. rings forged and all that stuff. Yeah, I... I think he can use this as a an opportunity to build trust, you know? Yeah. There's a lot more rings of power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. Uh, Giorgio says, is it possible that you are locking in on Isildur's personality too much too soon? We have a whole five-season character arc ahead of us, after all. Maybe they plan on to build him up slowly and show character growth and truly a change into being the hero he turns out to be before the ring then corrupts him. Won't that be a more devastating turn than whenever trials and sacrifices he endures? He grows up to be an honorable and righteous man that gets taken away by Sauron's evil ring of power. Could be. Could be. That's what they're doing. They're going to have they set themselves a pretty high bar, though. Yeah, I mean, I like that's the thing. Like, I understand that if you've read the books, you understand that Isildur is this this heroic figure and that uh, his keeping of the one ring wasn't even as, like, nakedly evil as it's portrayed in the movies. But in the movies, which is what 99% of Tolkien fans' point of view begins and ends with, mm-hmm. Isildur is the prototypical weak man that fails when you need them. Like he is the object lesson of this that Elrond throws into Gandalf's face. And I feel like this show is showing that he started off as a weak man of low character that's easily swayed. And, and, you know, this kind of, kind of, you know, not a person of substance and his endpoint is going to be that person. So like, Mm -hmm. that's not character development. This no, there like could be. I, I mean, it, it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, when you show the flaws of a character up front, you expect them to grow out of those flaws. Yeah. Um, and then to, you know, subvert that. I mean, this this is all tropes, right? This is all like patterns of storytelling. Storytelling, um, yeah. Uh-huh. So, like, to then subvert that at the very end, you, you could be going with the point that, like, e- even good people even strong people can be corrupted by the influence of the ring or whatever but i don't know because then you look back at him and you ask the question naturally was he ever actually a strong or good person if you start start his story like this so i don't know yeah You, you might be right Giorgio, but it feels to me like they're telling a story of how this guy you know how how this how this kind of selfish weak person came to be Mm-hmm. <laughs> not like oh we're gonna build this paragon of virtue and then he's gonna have one moment of weakness and throw it all away but yeah you could be right 
Roberto says, I'm surprised that Adar didn't die. After all the humanization of the orcs, it feels like Adar needed to go so Sauron can make the orcs into mindless servants for his purposes again. I think Adar is one of the strongest points of the show, so maybe they need him alive. Oh, I think season two is going to deal a lot with Sauron vest, uh, um, vying with Adar for supremacy. Yeah, possibly. I mean, they're both in the same land now. Um, yeah, the thing I, is Sauron, I don't have a great read on on Adar and Sauron's relationship is the thing. I, I don't know I if they're going to be best of buds when he gets there or if they're going to be antagonistic. I really worry that the showrunners don't know anything more than we, that they have like, <laughs> this is an interesting idea and we'll mm-hmm. figure it out in season two. Because here's the thing is like Sauron's extremely powerful, but he has no army. Sure. Uh, and Adar is extremely powerful by, by, by rights of being an ancient elf that's been corrupted by darkness. And he has an army that he mm-hmm. is just delivered for in a big, big way. So... I wonder if Sauron can convince Adar. Does Sauron does, does Sauron show up as Halbrand and be like, you know what? I was the king of the south. I can deliver the rest of the south to you. And like worms his way, kind of like like he he essentially plays in plain view of the audience the scam that he ran on Numenor and Gladrail this season. Only runs it on Adar and the orcs. Uh, maybe. Like you know, you kicked their asses. Uh, I, 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 the scales have fallen from my eyes. I'm no longer going to be deceived by these men and these these elves. Uh, I want the South to be ran by the Southlands. I want the oppressed humans and orcs to live together in unity. And Adar's like, hell yeah! If you can deliver me the South, then. But but all he can do is deliver a village of like 35 <laughs> maimed old men at this point. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Ad- uh, Adam, Adam, Jesus, the show's really got to me. <laughs> Adam says, I maintain Theo is likely Aaron Deer's son. Sure, there's some lore conflicts on making another half elf, but I can't see why he's a darker skin than his mother and has pointy ears. Um, He has pointy ears? I don't think he has pointy ears. I've not seen these pointy ears, but maybe. I have not been watching this kid's ears, so. I think, I think he's got... I, and there's the other thing about dark, like, he's, come on, let's settle down. Number one, Aaron Deere's not that dark-skinned. Second, like, I'm co-hosting with a dude whose brother looks stereotypically Mediterranean, and he's mm-hmm. super white. And, and, my, and my co-host here is super white. So, like, that yeah. happens. Like, we're talking minor shades of difference here. Uh, he also says, Theo and Galat, and that, the other thing is, like, I just don't know where that gets us. See, I thought I think he's saying that maybe I've heard a lot of people express the fact that this guy's ears are too are hidden and you got hidden yeah, yeah. ears. You think of elves, you know, because of the Gladriel thing. Uh, anyway, so what are you saying? Uh, where does that get us? If yeah, Theo is a like half what, elf. Yeah. What does that do for the story? I have no idea. I mean, half elves are significant. Right, yeah, like in in the Tolkien lore, um, in in ways that I'm not super familiar with, but I, I know they're almost like are they harbingers of? I, I want to say they're almost like savior type characters. Am I wrong? Are they like so, harbingers of unity or something, or is that 
they're they're always very they're always like very powerful very impactful they definitely Mm -hmm. have huge impacts in the plot you know they give birth to people who have you know echo throughout the plot yeah like but they're always also seen as star-crossed they're tragic figures because because Tolkien displays them as from two different worlds and they're kind of like, you know, doomed to um, have, you know, a a bad end because they just can't be together forever. Um, And that kind of, you know, that tragedy kind of informs all the writing. So, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a tragic coupling. But again, I I I would say it's risky, but like for, for them to introduce another half elf. But I would say also when you talk about, you know, most of people's point of view is just, they've watched the Lord of Rings movies. Sure. Um, so they don't really know all that lore and stuff. And also the people who are inclined to be angry about a decision like that are already pissed off at this show and kind of hate it. So, and they're still yeah. watching it. They're still watching it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. yeah. They're out there every single week, clicking the button to give Amazon more likes and more views and higher numbers and more money. Uh, but boy, are they vociferous about how much they dislike this show already. So you can't really piss them off too much more. So sure, I guess True. go for it. If you want to make him a half elf, do it because I won't really care. I don't understand the significance enough. And I'm one of those just I watch the movies kind of guys. So I don't know. Try it. See what happens. I just don't think the Aaron Deer nor Bronwyn act like a person who has fucked to the point that they even have a 15 year old, 16 year old child. They just don't each just other. Don't. You mean each other, right? Cause Bronwyn almost certainly has. Okay. <laughs> That's it's an immaculate conception, but yeah, Aaron deer, no, yeah, okay. yeah, super yeah. virgin, super I, virgin, straight. He seems like elf. It. Yeah. Uh, Adam says also Theo and Gladriel are an interesting relationship as he serves as a mirror for Gladriel. His anger and shame and guilt are similar to hers, only through guiding this young man or possibly half-elf might she perhaps see the flaw in her own vengeance streak. I think we'll see these two on screen together again. Do we? How? Hmm. I wonder. And to me, I think it's going to be tragic because Galadriel sent him on this path of being a soldier and being proud to fight for the Southlands, and now the Southlands has been corrupted to a bad end all around. So it's going to be another kind of failure of hers that's starting to mount and add up. I mean, they got to move to the country and plant their Alfirin garden, right? That's they got to <laughs> see each other again. Oh, well, we're not talking. We're talking about Theo and Gladrill. We're not talking oh, about Aaron okay. Deer and, and, and Bronwyn here. Gotcha. Um, finally, it's really something else. They made Barrick a full, re, fully realized character. He's far more qualified than Isil Dork and will single hoofedly save his ass, which is... Without which we don't get Lord of the Rings. So Barrick, the real MVP. Hard to disagree. Yeah. Hard to disagree. And he did it with a cool ass scar, too. Another Aaron comes up, says listening to this week's feedback podcast for Rings of Power and was twisted up about Aaron's heroin comparison with Arwen and Aragorn's relationship. I think it's a beautiful picture of someone choosing love for a short time versus never having experienced it. The question really is if you knew. You would only have 10 to 15 years of a true, blissful, and loving, uh, uh, fulfilling love partner, and then they would die of cancer or heart disease, and you would lose them. Is that a choice you would make? Arwen's life isn't necessarily um, over after Aragorn's death. She's not living under a bridge giving 50-cent blowjobs. She's <laughs> that, I guess that's rock bottom. I yeah. guess that's rock bottom. If she's holding the line at a dollar, you know, she's got a shred of dignity. 50 cents. At least bitch, you can on. get it. Coke from the vending machine, yeah. 50 cents? Can't do anything with that. Can't do nothing. 
Uh, she's sad and lonely without the loss of her love, but I bet she would not trade the experiences she had with him for the world. I think we as humans make this choice all the time. All relationships are temporary and potentially short. It's part of life. Um, many of us never experienced this kind of love and would gladly give the world to have it, even if it meant it would only last a season. Love is always enriching and life affirming. Heroine is ugly and death. Just my two cents. Love the podcast as always. Um, the thing is, I think if you ask your average Lord of the Rings fan, um, what they think of Arwen and Aragorn's relationship, they wouldn't say that, well, you know, of course they ended up exactly like Elrond said to Arwen, which shocked and dismayed her and made her pack up and go to mm-hmm. the Grey Havens, right? And she got waylaid by a vision of a child. And I, I guess also, like, I'd have to know your opinion on the movie Arrival because that posits a very similar kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they have two main characters that have a very differing experiences i don't think everyone at the end of an experience would say i would trade this three to six months of misery for you know and 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 i would rather have loved and lost and never loved i don't think that's a universal experience at all there are some things are so traumatic that you're like no fuck me if i could go back and spare myself i would Mm -hmm. and i just think that like where they leave arwen at the end of the third age going into the fourth is really a bad spot you know Eugene says, I feel like you missed or failed to talk about an important development. When Durin and Deese were talking about becoming king, they took a noticeable turn towards the dark side. They got all possessive and starting referring to the kingdom as mine and ours. I'm guessing it's either the effect of the evil released from Mount Doom or digging too deep. What do you guys think? Hmm. I didn't get that, but there is this kind of weak association between possessive and evil, you know, like it's the hallmark of Gollum. Yeah. yeah. And anyone, anytime the ring bearer starts talking about mine, it's mine, it's precious. It's just mine. That shows that they've been corrupted. Yeah. I mean, greed is one of the, the sins, right? The typical seven deadly sins, but also this is a real thing that this is a kingdom that they will possess and inherit because they are mm-hmm. the next in line for the throne. So it's to me, it's like when I told my mother at 16, when I get out of this place, I'm running my house completely different way, mom. Like, I don't think that's me evil. That's just me saying <laughs> I can't fucking wait to the keys of my own life are flipped to me and I can start driving. Um, mm-hmm. Although how I've turned out, your mileage may vary, whether you consider good, good or evil. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah I, was, I, I wasn't I reading evil either. Um, maybe they're going for that. If so, it's very subtle, uh, and maybe they'll build on it. But yeah, that's not how I was reading it. I did think it was a weird affect to essentially after your friend and all of his species are condemned to death to be like, well, but think on the bright side, when mm-hmm. your dad dies, we'll be able to do whatever we want. It's like, oof, it's cold comfort in that moment. Maybe they already have a plot going and he's going to die like next week. And then they can fix it all. I mean, obviously not with everything we saw in this episode, but. John G says, uh, one thing I've disagreed with you uh, this season is the constant criticism and side eyed thrown at the idea of the Harfoots leaving people behind. For me, this has been one of the good things about the show because I'm with Jim. I don't like too much fantasy in my fantasy. I don't want prophesied heroes from good and light who are born special with the mission to fight the evil of darkness that were born bad. It's just not that interesting. 
However, in Tolkien, we have hobbits and harfoots, and they don't have any magic. They're very small. It's a very dangerous world of big people and monsters. For me, that touch of realism in this fantastical world is nice. It means more to me what happens to these characters because they live in a world where they need to make these terrible and hard decisions, like leaving people behind, because otherwise they all die. It's not always do the right thing that feels nice and you feel good about it, then you'll always be right. Their struggles make sense on a level that we understand. Not that I don't like the bigger supernatural fantasy elements being here. The finale had some great scenes of Sauron letting his power uh, free and taking over Galadriel's mind, as well as the Swedish death metal team and all of their magic. Um, what do you think? Because like, I get, I get that sentiment, but they didn't even try. Like, I also want my my characters to try to save each other, and it seems like they are eager to leave people behind is is the impression i got like you fall one step behind you're you're dead to us uh there was no immediate danger when meteor man's uh being dragged around in this caravan if there were wolves attacking while they were on the road and they needed to leave them behind yes totally like i get it you you've got to make hard decisions to protect the group understand it yeah there is no reason to leave this family behind it as best i can tell again it, yeah i i think they could have done a better job if they wanted to make this seem like this is a thing that we hate to do but it's very necessary like i said mm-hmm. we are mice people we are not hawks we are not serpents we are not badgers or foxes we hot mm-hmm. we live by the by spitting li- in between the seams and hiding in the shadows which is fine but again, it's a twisted ankle. It's a twisted ankle, and they have carts. Mm-hmm. Like they were literally carting around the big fellow in the back of their cart, and which is and like, is there not a single family in this tightly knit group that'd be like, you know what, we'll take the guy for a cart for half a day, and then this family can take him for half a day, and then yeah. this family can take for yeah. half a day. Like it was just like, nope, we're you're not only banished, but you're at the back of the pack. Uh huh. And if they if they said like you know like I said if there's wolves chase them if there was some kind of famine where it's like seriously if we don't leave mm-hmm. you know like we're not saying you can't come with but you got to keep up a pace because we don't get this next valley in the next x amount of time like we'll miss the harvest and we're all gonna die in the winter but they didn't establish yeah. any real stakes no nope. um the stake was he had a swollen ankle to probably be fine with mm-hmm. a week or so of rest uh and that was enough to get. And then just the thing, it's like essentially a death sentence being put at the back of the caravan. We're just going to outwalk you. So I don't know. I liked it in theory. And the other thing that the other thing that left me a little cold is when they made a joke about the dumb guy getting stung to death by bees. All right. When Sadok is like, "Ah, this guy died because of a bee, a beehive. Uh Uh, He never was that smart. It's like, ah, God, you're talking shit about the beloved dead that they're all crying about uh yeah yeah i don't yeah. know i i didn't have much of a problem with that i kind of enjoyed it they're they're remembering him humorously alex says what really got to me is how ridiculously passive sauron turned out to be going into this show i expected to see a master manipulator spinning webs of lies instead he basically sits back and lets things ha- happen to him all season Galadriel picked him up from the ocean. Galadriel saw a sigil and decided to make him king. He sat in jail for a while in Numenor. 
Then the Numenorians took him to the Southlands and fought with the orcs with him in tow. Gladriel decided to bring him to the elves after he was wounded. Only in the last episode did he show up at the forge, have a five-minute chat with Celebrimbor, admit that he was Sauron to Gladriel, and then leave. Just doesn't seem like he had a plan at all. It just felt like his entire plot was reverse-engineered from a desire to have a cool reveal where a surprising character turned out to be Sauron, and that happened at the expense of actually developing a compelling villain. I mean, I, I feel that a little bit, but I, I wonder if he had a plan. I mean, he was trying to embed himself in the Builders Guild, right, in Numenor, um, and getting his blacksmith skills uh, in into their systems there. I feel like he might have been trying to, you know, forge some rings uh, there on Numenor, and this Galadriel thing was an annoyance to him. But he eventually realized, ah, eh, I could probably do this and maybe get to my goal a little faster. Yeah, the, I th- honestly, I think everything tracks except for how he got on that boat. Like, if I understood yeah, if I that no was a desperate gamble, if that was a calculated play, if that was just him, you know, what, you know, like, like, was he just in the right place at the right time and is all a coincidence and serendipity? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it seems he, like but because otherwise yeah when he got to Numenor he was he was as they outlined in the plot he was locked into a goal and Galadriel kept on fucking with him like I want to stay in <laughs> right. Numenor and do smithing uh-huh. no 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 we got to do this ah oh, Jesus Christ I get like he and then once they got there he fought against I, I thought I thought it's really well done except for how he got there and, and maybe they will explain that next season when him and Adar meet up maybe yeah yeah, maybe. Um, Lindsay says, I'm looking forward to a Dar versus Sauron showdown this next season. Now that Sauron seems to be heading to Mordor, the reveal that Halbrand to Sauron really gave new meaning, meaning to the moment when Halbrand asked Adar if he remembered him, especially since Adar thinks he killed Sauron. I doubt we get in a flashback to the original fights and Sauron obviously must have looked not looked like Charlie Vickers at the time, but I'm looking forward to the rematch. I mean, he might have had all that armor on. Be tough to recognize anybody out of that armor. It's true. That's true. Um, yeah. No, I I think they might flash back to the battle. And I definitely I, I hope, man, I hope that I hope that we what we don't get is next season is Sauron standing, you know, bloodied with Adar's head at his feet and all the orcs are like, you know, doing obeisance to him. It's like I, I really do need <laughs> yeah, to yeah. see how he wins Mordor just by himself with no ring of power, no nothing. Mm-hmm. He has got to co-opt either Adar's got to be working with him all the time, which I don't think is the case, or he's got to co-opt Adar or eliminate Adar and not have the orcs turn on him and then devote themselves entirely to forging of the one ring. Yeah. I'm also curious how uh, Adar can think that he killed Sauron and Sauron not actually be dead. Uh, I'm sure there's magic involved. I'm sure yeah. there's some, some, you know, in world obvious explanation, but I kind of would like to know what happened there. Yeah, because like it's one thing when Gandalf gets killed by the Balrog, because I'm sure the Balrog as it's dying, it's like, well, at least I got that fucker and he <laughs> expires. And then Gandalf's spirit goes and goes back to Middle Earth heaven, and the gods are like, mm-hmm. ah, we're not done with you yet. We're sending you back. How the fuck does that happen to Sauron? I don't know. 
especially since like they got it in, in once he forges the ring there's this idea that he's like uh, Voldemort and Harry Potter like he's got a horcrux that even if his physical body dies his spirit is tied to this plane and it can't leave so it kind of dissipates and eventually it'll coalesce somewhere and once he gets that mat once he gets the ring back he's just as powerful as he was because it's got all of his power in it right hmm, um okay. but he doesn't have that and why would the god send him back like this cop uh you know like i that that's what doesn't make sense to me like it makes sense that adar kills him and his spirit would go to and fro and then coalesce somewhere else but yeah i don't know sauron's a great deceiver he's very satanic figure in uh Mm -hmm. uh, more so than even i think morgoth in uh the lord of the rings series (laughs) at least the deceiver angle of it uh, the Irish monk says, I laughed every time you referred to the Swedish death metal Sauron followers. I'm guessing you don't know how right you are because in 2006, actual Swedish death metal band Unleashed released a song. We must join with him. And it's a banger to prove your telepathic ways here. A few lines from the first verse. Smoke is rising from the mountain, the mountains of doom. OK, I can't do that. It's a little yeah, too yeah, much yeah. my voice. Imagine sweet Swiss Swedish death metal screaming. Mm-hmm. On the Tower of Barad-dûr, that's the name of uh, Sauron's famous Black Tower, we must join with him, we must join with Sauron, or we have chosen death. Mm. Uh, shit, the Butcher Baker, Candlestick Maker, could have could have said that as much this, this season. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> I didn't. I, I just go with the, essentially a death clock uh, metalocalypse reference. <laughs> sure. I had no idea there was actually Swedish death metal bands repping Sauron out there. Makes sense. Thank you for Makes that. Makes sense. We got a lot of rings of power to ponder. We'll be right back after this short break. And now let's dig a little deeper on Doug Too Deep. Uh, Gene says, is Halbran slash Sauron sincere in his mission to heal, heal Middle-earth? Um, and is his regret we- real? I submit to you to a quote. I submit to you a quote from journalist H.L. Minken. The urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. This is true <laughs> even if you believe you want to save the world. It's warning about powerful people bearing gifts like Sauron or Elon Musk or <clears throat> Jeff Bezos. I thought it was a plot hole that Sal- Halbrand slash Sauron didn't just kill Galadriel at the river, but perhaps he's smitten with her. All that genocide talk may have given him an evil boner. Do you think that Halbrand knew that he was Sauron the whole time, or did he have a veil over his memories like Meteor Man? I'm finally pleased we get to see Sauron mm-hmm. in his fair form. Will we get to see a full-on Sauron character arc? So what do you think? What do you think about Sauron being legit, being evil, being good? I mean, people who do bad things can believe they're doing good things. Um, Yes. I I don't think the idea of like doing a bad thing and uh, thinking you're doing good is mutually exclusive. So I certainly believe, I mean, if I look at Adar, I think he's in that position, right? He thinks that he's going to unite uh, Middle Earth, he's just got some twisted ways of going about it. Um, and I think the end goal there is looks a lot different than a lot of people in Middle Earth would like it to look. Um, so yeah, Sauron could definitely be the same way. Uh, I was I was definitely getting like vibes where he is into Galadriel. 
in i don't even know if it's sexual right it's it's a weird like attraction sort of way though um, power yeah. ruling together power yeah all that stuff uh definitely getting those vibes but yeah i mean his his ideal middle earth might be hell for some and heaven for him right yeah, I think it's possible. I was listening to uh, David Chin's Decoding TV podcast on this, and his co-host Don read something from the Silmarillion where it said, essentially asked the same question, where it's like, you know, Sauron repented and humbled himself and gave himself a fair form and kind of wormed his way into the elves and men of various of various times. And the the book asked a rhetorical question. It's like, was this remorse genuine, you know, at seeing uh, the downfall of Morgoth and regretting the error of his ways? Or was it just the fear of hell, essentially? Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I saw Morgoth getting thrown into the pit of darkness forever. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to try to get right. And this isn't completely insincere. But, like, it seems like from the point of view of the universe in Tolkien's writings that you, they're kind of unsure. So I kind of think it's cool that we ourselves are unsure. And I think that episode eight did a particularly good job of threading that where it's like, is Sauron just fucking with Galadriel and manipulating her? Or is there a genuine love there and respect? Is there a genuine desire to undo some of the bad things that his boss had done? Does he feel genuine regret? And it's going to he's eventually going to regress back to his mean. I I don't know. And I think that's cool. Yeah. Does he want to be tempered by the light? Um, Yeah. No, it's an interesting idea. This is one of the things where I think they're really like in House of the Dragon. I'm really impressed by how they uh, Matt, they're, they're they're like representing all the points of view in the universe, like somehow through the actual events. And I think that Lord of the, the Rings of Power with Sauron and his present state of character development is really nailing that kind of like in universe hand wringing about what's actually going on here. What's the actual truth? Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's representing that accurately. And I think that's cool. Uh, Storlax says, quick note regarding Nori and Gandalf on an adventure together. I realize that lore purists out there might look at the stranger's decision to vacation in Rune as a reason to outright disprove that we're dealing with Gandalf. But I think it's important to remember that just because the Istar and Nori have set off to follow their noses towards Rune, that doesn't necessarily mean they will actually get there. Mm-hmm. Plenty of ordinary folk in the world ahead that could delay them, as well as many darknesses to keep them at bay that might not allow, not allow them to pass along the way. Uh, yeah, sure. Information they could discover that changes what, where they want to go, you know? But I do think that, yes, anything could happen, right? Mm -hmm. And you can do anything as long as it's well done. I do think that they spent a lot of time setting up this, what is it? (laughs) Miter's hat or what? Miser's hat. I can't remember the star cluster that you can only see from Rune. Oh, Hermit's. The the Hermit's cap. Yeah. That it feels like a lot of that's going to be wasted screen time if they never make it to Rune, if that's just a MacGuffin Mm, destination. So, like, I do think there's a mystery there that needs to be explored, and I think they will. But uh, we'll see. Sam H. says, I'm good. Has to be the lamest climatic line for a magical incineration of the Swedish death metal band and reveal for Gandalf. This flip-flops almost as ridiculous as the Harfoot crew semi-successfully fighting and evading those Sauron-worshipping magical beings. That section left a very children's book compared to a story that is otherwise going for serious fantasy, and I always feel like it's misplaced. None of the Nori or Harfit sections all season have been fun or interesting to me, but maybe I'm just a hater. Hmm. 
Uh, overall, I've got many pr- petty gripes and criticism of the show, but being honest, I'll definitely be watching next season. I'll be it with lower expectations that I came to this show with. Um, you know, I noticed that the like uh, Dave and Don were really bagging on this "I'm good" line, and I, I it didn't occur to me to criticize it because it was so Iron Giant, and I love Iron Giant so much that like maybe a very powerful but simple-minded being just standing up and saying, I'm good actually gets me. But I didn't think that was a, I didn't think that was a stupid line. No, it didn't register as stupid to me at all. Uh, But maybe I'm just not properly calibrated. Yeah, maybe we're the simple-minded ones here. I could be. Because, yeah, I mean, having a person stand up the evil and be like, I'm good, actually, is kind of laughable. But Mm -hmm. in the scene, I really was gripped up and I I was I was excited to see him blow those moth people to hell. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was a statement. Final. Plus, also, it's like, is he good or is he evil? We've been saying that. And he just saying, I'm good. Like, finally, we get an answer. If he was like. I got this. I, I I would definitely have noticed that. Yeah. But I, I'm good. Didn't register. Yeah. Um, and as far as the Harfoot, man, like I think that you're, you're in good company for criticizing the show because this, you know, this, I think podcast is a fair represent is fair representation of how the community feels about this show. That is gorgeous. And the craftsmanship is exquisite. And the plot succeeds about half of the time. Uh, however, most people's bright spot on the plot does include the Harfoots and mm-hmm. the dwarves and Elrond. Um, so you're kind of in you're kind of in thin company there. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I feel like we're we're dead center on the the two extremes of the the fandom or not fandom here. Like I don't see a lot of people saying. Hey, this show is flawed, but it has some really bright spots. What I see is half the people saying this show fucking sucks. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. This is an atrocity Uh, to Tolkien. And then I see the other half going, it's amazing. Look at all, you know, the, the horse riding scenes and look at how beautifully they're integrating like this particular plot element from the book. I've seen very rarely people having measured views on this show. And of course, right. It's the Internet. That it's yeah, it's a it's a hype and and angst machine. That is what the internet does nowadays. So, yeah, I try, I, I try to just give my opinion, and it's I I don't hate this show, and I don't love yeah. this show. I think it's a fine show for the most part, with some serious flaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree with that, and I also agree that like I will be watching next season again, schedule permitting, but. This is a show that's, you know, got a lot of eyeballs on it. Um, it does things, some yeah. things extraordinarily well. The biggest flaw, I think, is the inexperience of the showrunners and the writers. And mm-hmm. that's something that can be fixed just with experience. Like, they'll be better next year, you would hope. But I don't know, because, like, uh, here, here's the other thing. Scott Gimple was a staff writer <laughs> in The Walking Dead that wrote some pretty fucking good episodes. Mm-hmm. And on the basis of that one season of excellence, they gave him the keys of the kingdom. We're flipping a lot of keys in this podcast for some reason. They flipped in the keys of the kingdom and said, you are now the walking dead. 
And I think it went to his head because instead from that point forward, instead of being like, okay, I've done a lot of good things, but there's also some criticism here. It's almost like he's like, nah, no one knows what the fuck they're talking about except for me and ruined the show. Like Mm -hmm. he was supposed to be the savior. He's supposed to be the one that brings balance to the writing and he just fucking ruined it. And then Angela Kang has come in and has, has tried to like give it a good send off. If I come back to this season and I see the preseason and uh, they're going to be asked, you know, there's a lot of criticism in the last season show. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you make of that? And if they're like, you know what? We've read that and that's stupid and we're going to mm-hmm. trust in our own judgment and we know what's good, right and wrong because there's a lot of fans that loved it for exactly who. And that's the show. I'm going to be like, oh, fucking Christ. But if they're like, you know what? Yeah, we are inexperienced and we did learn a lot in that first year. And I think fans are going to see us mature as storytellers going forward. I'm going to be like, thank God they can be taught. Um, yeah, because sure. that's what that's what the Picard writers said going into season two. They're like, actually, we thought season one is awesome and there's mm-hmm. no problems and people just need to suck it. And surprise, surprise, season two, hot garbage. Mm-hmm. So, like, can they be taught? Are they humble enough? And they should be. Jesus Christ. They don't know. They, they're Jon Snow's. They know nothing. Um, they should try to triangulate on the feedback. You know, they can't. You know, you can't make a show that pleases everybody. But I think they should do harder to shore up the weaknesses that they had in the season. Yeah, I don't know what their their opinions on their own work is because what I'm getting from all the articles I read about them prior to this season talking about how they've been writing for 25 years together. And by the way, when they say that they're talking about middle school plays that they did. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if they're properly calibrated on that because writing a middle school play for 25 years is entirely different than writing the biggest budget show in the history of cinema. So yeah, agreed. I, I don't I don't know if you come away from that going, well, we've been writing for so long. Obviously, we're experienced, so it's not experience. It's not that we can learn anything new from that. It's more we just didn't write to people's taste. I could see them coming away from it with that because uh-huh. I just don't know. Like the way it's been portrayed is they are longtime writing partners who have uh-huh. a history and a substantial catalog under their belts. I just don't see it from their IMDb credits. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I see two shows, uh, two uh, two shows that they've written episodes for, or whatever, and that's kind of it. But like, do they see it that way? Do they see themselves as needing some tempering in in this kind of experience, or do they see themselves as like seasoned already? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I know what I'm hoping on, but we'll have to see. Because the media sees them as seasoned, which is crazy to me. Crazy that everybody's like 25 year veterans. I'm like, show well, me, show me there was their a lot catalog. Of, there was, I see, that's the thing about Hollywood writing is there mm-hmm. was a lot of like uncritical parroting of that, but also almost without fail, they would write, they would like make sure that people knew that like they don't have any screenwriting credits. Like they're, <laughs> and, and, but I, I, but I wish they had, I wish they'd, I'd wish they'd made the connection earlier. And maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. Because I don't like apparently J.J. Abrams vouch for these guys. Oh, Why? that's who I want vouching for my. Yeah. The the bastion of creative cinema that is J.J. Abrams these days. That's what I wow, want. Has J.J. Abrams star fallen that far? Because he's done some fucking <laughs> yes. good shit, man. Is it? Is it really in my mind. Bad? In my mind. I don't know. 
Um, yeah, I just got to see like what, how, uh, yeah, how do they feel about this? Because if they got any humility and any appreciation for where they're at, I think they could learn from valid criticisms. And I think there are some valid mm-hmm. criticisms this season and, and course correct, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, August P has a pretty hot meme for us. It says expanse writers. Hey, Jeff Bezos interested in adapting our highly regarded final trilogy Bezos. And it's just a screenshot of the stranger saying, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Great reaction. Great reaction. Gif him just saying, I'm good. You can just use that to like, Hey, do you want us to get Taco Bell for you tonight? I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jamie H says, I'd like to collect my internet points because in the feedback for the first two episodes, I wrote that Galadriel's shipback, shipwreck friend, AKA Halbrand was totally Sauron. Mm. I had no evidence at time other than he was shady as fuck, but I was right. Please, please send all internet points to my Gmail account. I've transferred all of the internet points to your account. Mm-hmm. You'll notice it's still zero because it turns out this game is rigged and the points don't matter, but you got them. Uh, no, that's, the, the thing is, is like the brilliant thing about the Sauron thing is I think 100% tracks in retrospect. And if I got to say all the yeah. things they had to do this season, that's one of the things they would have to do. And I think they did that pretty fucking good. You know, I know it comes off as passive or, you know, apparently to some people. But like that fact that after the fact that plot tracks clean was pretty nifty, pretty mm-hmm. nifty. Uh, now this season is over, I'm curious, what are some of the tweaks you think the show needs to make next season to tighten up the story? I think the writer's room needs adjusting. Some of the dialogue is really clunky this season. It detracts from the gorgeous visuals. Jim, what? I, I've got well, at least one big suggestion, I think, that would instantly make the show better. But do you have anything? Um, Boy. At this point, like if we're talking big changes, I think they just need to do, they need to make the connective tissue more connective. I, I'm, I'm not able to connect the dots on a lot of the stuff they're doing. If they're in fact doing it, um, you know, we talked about the Isildur stuff. If that's where they're going with it, it's almost too subtle uh, or, or like, or they're not, they're not telling us that they're going to tell us a story with that. They're just, kind of putting it out there. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, th- this stuff is hard because a lot of the the problems I have with this show are not things you can point to and say, well, if they just did this one thing, it would fix it. They need yeah. to, they need to write better. But how do you, how do you describe that? Right. How do yeah. you tell people like, here's how you write better? Yeah. I don't know, man. Here's, here's my suggestion. You guys next season are not allowed to open or close a puzzle box. You need to concentrate on ditching the reliance of surprise and shock in favor of clear, understandable motivations of characters that we have come to either love or hate. That's all. It's not about what's in the box. It's not about what the rusty sword does. It's not about who the nature of this person hanging out with uh, the hobbits for half of, for the entire fucking season. Mm-hmm. It's 
how we feel about the characters, whether we love them or hate them, and whether we understand their motivations enough to be invested in them. Because I felt like this show held us at arm's length for most of the season just so they can, in episode eight, blow our mm-hmm. fucking minds with the strangers actually Gandalf, probably, and Halbrin's actually Sauron, and all this other stuff when they could have played this stuff at face value. Maybe the Sauron's the one thing you couldn't. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't know why Isildur, they, they made the western half of Numenor so fucking mysterious. I don't know why Isildur's mother's fate is so mysterious. I don't know why Isildur's brother was never seen and only referenced once. I don't understand why there was so many important things. I don't know why Galadriel didn't have a husband until uh, episode six. <laughs> Sorry, episode seven. Mm-hmm. I don't know why these major things don't get. I mean, it's like imagine watching fucking Mad Men. And you get all the way through season one until you find that Don's married. Sure. He's just this playboy guy. And it turns out he's got this perfect picturesque 1950s housewife. That would kind of like, what What the fuck did that? Just stop. No, you don't. And honestly, that's something the Mad Men learned from. They tried to make you know Don kind of a puzzle box. And they quickly abandoned, you know, that was kind of the one thing they did. They kind of abandoned it and moved on. But like, I just think that that's a cheap way to get audience engagement and community interaction oh yeah and it's not in lord of the rings dna right like i've never felt yes watching any of the movies like oh who is this character you know is this guy sure like actually this other character no it's always very straightforward you know where people are aligned are they good are they evil or are they tempted oh sauron when he gets that ring what's he gonna do with it oh who knows Mm -hmm. it could be no he's (laughs) gonna gonna unite the the world yeah he's gonna bind them all in darkness like it's right you you know that you know that that's the the simplicity and his archetypes like yeah i mean i don't know it it doesn't feel like confident storytelling when you have all these mysteries and it's it's just it's just better. It's just better when you have clear, simple motivations that pay off in grand ways. You know, someone someone said to something yeah, totally. really I thought interesting is that because of serendipity, both game game uh, House of the Dragon and Rings of Power had an old king die. Mm-hmm. One was the most incredible thing you've probably seen all year. And the other one was just some black flags that the person who's most impact, impacted by it couldn't even see. And oh. just kind of spinning around 360 like, oh, what does it all mean? We knew exactly what it fucking meant when the other king died. It's mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's that's indicative of you had the exact amount, same amount of time to establish these characters and what they meant to people and what it meant when they died. Mm-hmm. But like, I think most people probably don't. It's like, well. I don't know. Farazone, is he a good bet? Is, he, is Queen Miriam? Th- this, I don't know. They just. I think they wasted too much time in the puzzle boxes. Anyway, uh, do you have any hopes for things we'll see next season? I would love to see the Ints integrated into the story somehow. I'm, yes, <laughs> I would love to see Ints. Um, that's kind of it. I guess I, guess I would I like for my private stranger theory to pay off, but you know, that's just me being selfish. <laughs> okay. I guess I expect some more rings to show up. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, that, that is going to be interesting. The, the rings, how the elves find out about them. Um, I would like for them to hint that, that uh, I'd like to see the elves decision to be selfish with the rings, bite them in the ass too. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, the problem is there's already so many reasons for enmity between the dwarves and the elves right now. Sure. Like, you turned your back when you could have saved us. Well, you tried to steal our mithril and broke your oath to the mountain. And it's like, uh, I don't know. The idea, like, they also really soft peddled the idea that the el- the dwarves helped Celebrimbor build his forge. And that was never really acknowledged. The fact that the forge was built, the fact that dwarves weren't there anymore, the fact that that was a pretty big joint operation they did. So I w- I'd like to see some more of that. RG from Texas said one episode to redeem them all and maybe the entire season for me after experiencing the debacle episode seven, which I thought was the worst of the season so far. I was really afraid for episode eight. I really want to watch this. I really want to like the series when episode eight cold open to reveal falsely that stranger was Sauron. I literally turned off the television. However, Mm. the best episodes or best scenes of episode eight also had the ability to make them the worst and lose us all. First, the misdirection that the stranger was Sauron, only to hint that it was Halbrin slowly. I bring gifts, devices of power over flesh, etc. To then have the wizard be revealed in such a powerful scene was truly amazing. However, if the stranger turned out to be Sauron, then it would have been a huge disappointment. The other scene was when Halbrin revealed himself to Galadriel. How he went from seducing her to finally trying to coerce her was so good that I almost believe she would accept. Obviously, if she would have, even for half a second, it would have been a major upset. Sadly, I think this is a weakness of the show. I feel like every episode, they are swinging for the fences, many times falling flat. Likewise, every 10 minutes, a character is supposed to say something wise or powerful, but falls flat as dialogue. For example, when Nori says goodbye to Poppy, in a very emotional scene, Poppy says, it seems like everyone I love goes away. Nori responds to the effect of, that's how we learn. Take away the acting and the beautiful scenery and the music, and it's a horrible way to, it's a horrible thing to say to an orphan. Next time you give condolences to someone, drop in, and otherwise we wouldn't learn, and let me know how that works out for you. (laughs) In short, it's a great episode, but I felt like the entire season was the showrunners were playing Little League Baseball, trying to hit a home run with every time they were at bat to swing. When they hit it, it's amazing, and when they struck out, it was awful to see. (laughs) Yeah, imagine... Babe Ruth points to the <laughs> the stands in the outfield every time he gets up to bat, right? Yeah. That one yeah. time he hits it out of the park where he says he's going to is not nearly as impressive. Right, right. It's the time he just uh, grounds out the first. And uh-huh. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I will say this, that if I had to choose between showrunners that just play it safe, and try to go middle of the road for showrunners that take big swings and big ambitious things. And I would definitely bet, I definitely prefer the latter than the former. But also, it's hard to judge when you have literally first timers doing it because, like, mm-hmm. so, maybe you could say that you have to earn the right to take those big swings. Like, if a guy just walks on to the squad and just starts swinging at everything and striking out, yeah, that guy's an asshole. But if, like, your team captain says, you know what, I'm going to swing for defenses on this one, boys, fine, yeah, do it. Let's let's see there, slugger. Um, and I feel like a lot of these swings would have connected better if they had a better person. And they did. They had much more experienced people, Jones, to direct and, and show run this thing, and they passed them up in favor of these guys. So Yeah. Um, Adam says, let me say with, well, let me start with what I thought was good. I love the Nori and stranger stuff. I got teary eyed at the end and the adventure of those two characters are what's going to bring me back for season two. 
I also love the Elrond character, who I think, uh, and the actor who I think does such a good job. I wish he were in the Lord of the Rings movies with no slight towards Hugo Weaving. Oh, you you can't take Hugo Weaving out of the Elrond. No. Uh, I wish I could watch him for a solid hour each week. Now onto the bad. I thought the forging of the rings, which is the center point centerpiece of the show, was a major disappointment. After years of reading about that moment, imagining in my head, I was looking forward to it. Would it be in darkness? Would there be terror present? But when it was shown to us, it was made so ordinary and plain that I wish they hadn't. There was no mystery, no sense of power being created, no sense of danger. It was a goofy Santa's workshop moment with very little to separate it from any other scene in the show. In fact, it reminded me of the midichlorians. All my life, the Force had been this intangible thing that flowed through the universe and shaped it. Then Lucas introduced midichlorians suddenly and the magic was made ordinary. That was the forging of the elven rings for me. Uh maybe this is a little bit too like I didn't get I didn't get the sense that they were forging these world altering objects Mm -hmm. like there was no thrum of power there was no putting on of the ring and like something you know wind rushing in it just yeah it just felt like watching people make rings not particularly impressive or pretty ones yeah I think if we get another ring forging scene it's probably going to be what you're hoping it would be right there will be a lot of darkness around it there will be a lot of uh humming and then thrumming and uh just yeah it'll it'll be a lot more intense right yeah if i'm gonna play devil's advocate because i largely agree with this critique it might be something in Tolkien-esque that like sometimes simple things, unassuming things are the most powerful things. And mm-hmm. you could say that applies to Hobbits. You could say mm-hmm. the one ring is just canonically a simple gold ring. Yeah. There's no engraving that's obvious about it. There is no jewel. There's nothing to draw your attention to it other than the fact that it magically resizes itself to, sh- to, to match the shape of your finger. And, and it calls out to it, you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it rips you into the shadow realm when you put it on. But like, mm-hmm. It looks utterly mundane. So, like, they they might be going for, like, you just can't judge a book by its cover kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Adam says, I also cannot get over Gladriel not telling the others about Sauron, a person she has hunted for centuries. There's many justifications we could lob towards this, but ultimately I do not believe that her character would keep this knowledge secret, nor do I think she would abandon her search for him. Uh, yeah, what do I you agree with that think criticism. I, I was throughout that episode thinking, God, is she really not going to tell anybody what's going on here? Yeah. Um, at least what her suspicions are and she can go confirm that. But yeah. 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 Um, I didn't. The thing is, is that they've portrayed Galadriel impetuous enough that she might genuinely be afraid of the censure that she would face for allowing hmm. Sauron to get back into the world. <laughs> get a center to Valinor again and she's going to have to swim another hundred miles. Right. Like she's, she essentially like got Gilgalad said as much like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go in there and you're going to, you're going to, by seeking it, you're going to cause it. And broadly speaking, he's right. And it's almost like, well, I don't want to be told about it. So she just keeps it to herself. But, and yeah. I don't think it's very Galadriel like, but they are, they are selling her as this very impetuous, not thinking things through type of elf. And and as soon as she confirms it, Sauron's on her, right? It's not it's not like she got all this information and had a day to stew on it 
and consider, oh, should I tell them or shouldn't I? Is like she got the scroll. Halbrin shows up. He reveals he's Sauron in visions and she's floating face down at a river, right? Yeah. So, yeah, why maybe, would Sauron leave her alive? Uh, I don't know. He's got a thing for her, it seems. Yeah. I think he thinks he can still use her. Yeah. I think the fact Nature that she's power. not saying that it's uh, Sauron says that maybe he's right. Um, it's too bad because she's really abusing Elrond's trust here. He says, I'm never going to not trust you again. She immediately does something untrustworthy and legitimately so. And hmm. it feels like a betrayal because, yeah, like them, her saying, like, we should never deal with uh, Halbrand again. And, and Celebrimbor and Elrond's like, okay, I guess we won't fuck with this minor southern lord, you know, mm-hmm. this king of the south that may or may not exist. I, But also, don't you think Elrond's kind of stupid for not at least thinking it might be Sauron? Um, I, I, I don't know. Why would he be stupid for that? So he found the scroll that shows that Halbrand is a lie. He knows he's a talented smith. He knows a little bit more about the forging of magic things than maybe he should. But doesn't that the episode Galad- just end there? Like he, he runs up to the tower going, oh no, something is amiss here. He looks at it. They've already forged the rings and the episode ends, right? Like, no, he goes back and has it tells Galadriel and she says, doesn't she? Doesn't she eventually say, you got, you just got to trust me, man. You said you would trust me blindly just 30 minutes ago in the episode. And I need you to trust me blindly. I thought, I thought she said that to him before he found the scroll. You might be right. Yeah. Because if Elrond guesses by early next season it's Sauron, then it won't be. But still, it's, I don't, yeah, it's, it's a shitty thing that Galadriel did. Galadriel did. Yeah. Uh, finally, before we get into lore corner, Abdul from uh, the UK says, look at the CV, the curriculum vitae. Is that how you pronounce that? Sure. Of Ronald D. Moore before Battlestar Galactica or Damon Lindelof before Lost or Leftovers and The Watchmen. What are the chances that Amazon fires the showrunners of T-Rop? Their interview in The Hollywood Reporter was an embarrassing admission of being in over their heads. It's interesting because like, I feel like from the tone of this message, he's saying, mm-hmm. like, compare the CVs of Ronald Moore and Damon Lindelof. But, like, they legit had, like, Ronald D. Moore was largely responsible for <laughs> yeah. Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh. That's a, a pretty fucking bright next point. generation, too, yeah. A lot of fucking bright points and and the shows that he could actually run a science fiction show, actually. Damon Lindelof had a ton of primetime scripted dramas that he had served as a staff writer before he got his big shot on Lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And then by the time he gets the leftovers, like he had a checkered reputation because not everybody loved Lost. But since then, it's just like, yeah, Damon Lindelof, what a a storyteller. So those guys are exceptions um, to the like first because they're not first time showrunners. It was a natural. They cut their teeth under more experienced people as a part of a larger writing room. They got promoted to staff writers. Then then they got promoted to showrunners. You know, like that is a natural mm-hmm. progression. These guys, I mean, it's just, it'd be like, it's honestly, guys, it's just as shocking as if you found out that me, Jim and Aaron, were showrunning the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Because everything they say about themselves, sure. we could say honestly, like, oh, we've been working together for 30 <laughs> years and we've worked on creative uh, and, and, and script to draw, like literally as much experience as these guys had. Uh, just oh, I would, I would never... not trust myself with 
a show like this I, or any I, I show. I can imagine the temerity to put your name forward for writing, for show running this show with that little experience. It would never even occur to me to do that, to be like, call my rich and famous friend and be like, hey, we really got this idea for this thing. And, you know, we're like in our mid thirties now. and We're not happy with where we're at in our career. Uh, someone get us, get, someone give us a leg up. Like, I, I don't know why they asked. I don't know why someone interceded. I don't know why that intercession worked. Like, it's a mystery to me why you would give these showrunners this project. It's crazy. Yeah, and I would say that even before we saw the outcome of it, right? Like, why is the biggest show on the planet not being run by the biggest showrunners on the planet? Why do you not call in somebody who is extraordinarily popular right now? Yeah to do that go back and listen to our preview podcast that was essentially our point of view well we, not a preview like our first coverage is like the one thing that makes you give pause to this project is the fact that the showrunners have no experience as far as i can tell and the yeah. experience they do have is like schlocky stuff like it's some kind of vampire web series or is like it was, it was just yeah like jim said uh, some kind of junior high production of something or something it's like it's yeah it's not it wasn't great. It wasn't great. There's a lot more rings of power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. And now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. Uh, that's going to do it for this week, except for the lore corner. Stick around for that. But I know some people don't like to, to hear the spoilers, the potential spoilers of that. Uh, they might be leaving us now. We will have one more wrap-up podcast where we talk about, um, you know, and I, I don't know how long it'll be, but it'll be essentially us trying to divine when the show's going to come back, uh, see if there's any retrospective the creators might have given to give us insight into what went wrong and what went right. I'll always like uh, reading those kind of post-mortem interviews. And so we'll have that out next week. Um, follow along. You know, we're still run, run strong on hot D. We got a lot of stuff coming up for the end of this year and beginning of next year at baldmove.com. Follow us on twitter.com slash bald move. Uh, dug too deep at baldmove.com is how you get feedback in for the last uh, wrap up episode. And uh, now we're going to talk to John from the Lorehounds for the lore corner. Joining me now from the Lorehounds is both John and David back from his sojourn through middle earth uh welcome back to the lore corner guys thanks aaron it's good to be here yeah thanks for having us uh we got uh we got we got we got a smattering of lore stuff here at the end of all things uh mike is up first he's wanting to talk about the cultists so both the podcast i presume he's talking about bald move and lore hounds have speculated on the speculated on the possible elvish origins of the swedish death metal band members I like to point out that the helm the member has clearly human ears. Unless the cult clips elf ears like to do their dogs, I'd wager that all three of them are human. You know, I I, I didn't take a look at him because I imagine we got better looks at their ears in this last episode. Turns out they're just moth people. Uh, yes, <laughs> they're, they're they're moth spirits. But like I I I swear to God, until episode eight, we never got to look at a straight a straight up look on these people's ears. Uh, the helm like the helmet covered the ears. I don't know. Maybe you got elf eyes. We talk um, about these. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say what. Yeah, go ahead. We we talk about um, uh, these uh, the Swedish death metal band blah, 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 the the band on um, on our podcast that came out today, and I was really confused for a long time because they had 
elven-like bearing, you know, that sort of haughty reservedness. Mm-hmm. And so I was really confused for the longest time. And then, and then John convinced me that they're probably humans. Oh, I was thinking, well, at this point, they're probably Maya, right? Maya? I don't know. They, they're they really playing fast and loose with this magic I haven't, stuff, but... again, because you guys release this on the day that we compile and record the feedback. I haven't listened to your guys' feedback yet. Or your your guys' yeah, episode yet. But I wondered, um, did you make any connection between the moths that Gandalf is whispering into and the moth of the person that got banished into the Shadow Realms? Because it looked we didn't like, chat about it, but I heard you bring that up. Yeah, it looked it, it looked very Gandalf friend to me, but I, I don't know. This is uh, where they're doing this thing with the stranger and coding him with a lot of Gandalfian yeah. traits. Yeah. And is it just them messing with us or is it really going to play out now? With Halbrand, they were playing him out the whole time, and he told us who he was very early on, if we go back yeah. and listen. So, oh, yeah. oh, is it? Um, we, I think it's they're playing with us, uh, clearly, because that I, moth was completely a Gandalf thing. I think that Gandalf went to these guys, these Maiar in the Third Age, and said, look, you jumped me, I banished you to the Shadow Realms, but we're going to be cool, we're going to be even in everybody's books, if each of you relays at least one message to an eagle, and he's still got one of those in his pocket, he's still got one. <laughs> so they like each that. owe him a message, and <laughs> nice. uh, he got he got to collect on two of them. Uh, Mike yeah. has. Let's get to the real oh, lore meat here, because Mike says well, uh, uh, real quick, oh, a quick yep. plug. We've got our season wrap up coming, and we're going to be interviewing Marilyn Pukila, our uh, in-house Tolkien expert, and that is going to be a subject of conversation. Is what do these three people represent? Not so much going into the canon or not canon of them, but like mm. uh, historically, like what do these different um, figures represent uh, for the story? So we're going to definitely get into that. So keep an ear out for that coming out next week. All right. Mike is getting to the heart of the lore where I was like, oh, wiggle, wiggle, what now? Uh, of Elf man couplings there has come this has come up several times in both podcasts with the famous three discussed each time but why no mention of the elf uh elf mithralius and her supposed numenorian husband imrazor who became the founding couple of the line of princes of dole amroth granted i think it was just a legend but should at least be worth mentioning i yeah out of the big three i've i've never heard of this particular story what say you john um, I say that they have the rights to the appendices and they have some relationship with the Tolkien estate to get maybe some things out of the Silmarillion. And this is coming out of Unfinished Tales and they are not going anywhere near that. Yeah, that seems like the estate would would three t- three flavors of pounds. Uh, yep. All right. Well, that's the uh, that's the, the dollars and cents answer for sure. Um, moving on to Abdul from the UK says a question for the lore hounds. I've listened to your pods on the rights, but why were the token estates so restrictive in particular in their no- negotiations? They don't know TV. So why hamstring Amazon ahead of selling the rights? So I did uh, a little bit more digging around today and thinking about this question. And if we step back and we think about what, intellectual property is out there that is available to make TV and films from. We know that Tolkien sold the rights in 69 and that was to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. 
and the rights to make film and television and explore a bunch of other stuff. There's some other vague language in there about what else they can do. There's a weird carve out that says TV shows under eight episodes or less are not included. I don't know how that gets interpreted, but that's somewhere in the, in the language. It must have been during, so the, how, during, during the era of the miniseries. They're like, oh, well, you may have to do a miniseries, and that's, that's not going to be the same thing as a television show. So Right, right. So the Tolkien estate still owns the book rights, right? Those are, th- those are theirs, mm-hmm. and they're in an obligation with HarperCollins on, on those rights. So like, whenever they do anything with book stuff – they have to do it in conjunction with HarperCollins. So if we look at a lot of the other stuff, the Silmarillion, uh, Buried in Luthien, The Fall of Gondolin, The Children of Hurin, Unfinished Tales, The History of Middle-Earth, guess whose name is on all of that stuff? Christopher Tolkien. Christopher Tolkien was the person who brought all of that material together, and that's whose name is listed as the editor of that stuff. So now we get into even more gray area of rights about who has the authority to issue those rights and sell them. <clears throat> now we know that, no, we don't know. We, we speculate. There's a lot of speculation that Christopher was not happy watching his father have to sell the rights in 69 to pay off a tax bill. And, there has long been a lot of thing, you know, like you know, people reading the tea leaves, uh, both about Tolkien and about Christopher, about their attitudes towards making films and TVs and other adaptations. And the 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 assessment is largely that Christopher has never been very positive about issuing those rights. So now the estate has the rights to these things ostensibly. So. If Christopher's not very positive about having these things out there, what do, did he say anything in his will? Does the estate have any instructions about what they can and they cannot do? So that's like a big question mark. We just don't know. It's very opaque. It's very hard to find information about this. Apparently, the showrunners do have an avenue to approach the estate to ask for specific things. But because... They've given them the the rights to the the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, and the appendices. If there's a name that's that's hooked in there that another rights holder has license to, that gets into some really gray area stuff too. So now you've got Harper Collins, you've got New Line Cinema because they've got uh, a claim in there. You have the lawyers, you have the estate. So it gets really complex to figure out, well, can we pull Anatar's name? Can we pull this name or that name or this location or that location? So I think that's my best answer for why has the estate been so restrictive? Uh, first of all, you know, there's a there's a lot of material out there that is not Tolkien's per se. And then it's just a very complex rights thing. And then with these other titles, I don't know, John might have an opinion because Sil- Silmarillion isn't really a... It's it's more like history of what's the Targaryen history, Aaron? Iron Blood, yeah, yeah. It's it's dry. It's dry material, right? Oh yeah. Well, no, it's like it's kind of like first five books of the Bible stuff. I will say that. So like the 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 long story or long story short is Tolkien probably never wanted to sell any television or movie rights. He was forced to buy a tax bill. That never sat right with his son. His son was very product- productive, but the, the rights were already out there. The, the horse was out of yeah. the barn, but Christopher wanted no more horses out of the barn. 
And I think I've heard on maybe your guys's podcast that maybe the younger generation of Tolkien's are a little bit more open to Simon Tolkien is very <laughs> open. More He's a scriptwriter. Yeah, Simon Tolkien, Christopher's son, uh-huh. has been on the record about wanting to see more uh, material released. And yeah. he's a consultant on the show, right? Uh, the, he, one of them was a consultant. One of the is he listed grand. as a consultant? I thought it was a granddaughter was, was the consultant. Mm. Could be. Well, somebody from the Tolkien estate is a consultant, so it's not like yeah. this is not a hostile relationship. Here. No, it's not a hostile, but like I definitely I feel like probably the state is divided itself. Like there's probably some that are like, yeah, let's make as much money respectfully as we can. There's some that's like, you know, grandpa didn't want it. Absolutely fucking not. Neither did dad. And there's others are probably kind of in, you know, so it's, it's probably, I I don't know. Have you gone, you know, if anyone's gone through an estate with family, like usually it's not everyone's speaking of with one voice, Uh, but the, but it comes out that way from the estate, And it seems like, the 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 flow right now is like let's not let any more horses out um, as as long as at we the can. same time I I this is my theory this is my own personal theory is that the estate is like they're looking around and they're seeing how the rights are getting passed around because Embracer Group and there's new trademarks being patented they're they're right. aware that the MCU universe model mm-hmm. is coming for them yeah so I feel like the estate is like well let's get ahead of this let's tender. Amazon won that bid fair and square. It wasn't like they, they, it, Amazon didn't go to the estate. The estate said, Hey, y'all come, come pitch us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they liked Amazon's pitch the best because they want to be at the core of the conversation of how the rights are being rolled out, how, how additional properties are being developed. Cause we're going to see a lot of get, video games. Do you think we could get a house of the dragon style show about the rights of the Tolkien estate. We just have a, a, a little view into the negotiations of, of who, which family member yeah. wants what released. Succession. Yeah, call, call one of them Team Hobbit and the other Team uh, Mordor, and you, you would have a banger uh, a podcast following, if, if uh, my experience is anything to go by. Okay. Uh, hopefully that answers your question, Abdul. I think it's the best we can answer without getting interviews with the Tolkien estate. Uh, Caitlin tees up next. She says, I saw this on Twitter pulled from Tolkien's 1951 letter to one Milton Waldman, a prospective publisher, of the Cimmerillion. I've heard McKay and Payne, that's the two showrunners, speak with their uh, about their writing process a few times now. They gave a great interview with Joanna Robinson on The Ringer this week. She mentions parenthetically. So if you're interested in that, check it out as well as Brian Cogman on his involvement at the beginning and how much care and detail they gave each line read. I think they know exactly what they want the story to be. So they included three snippets from this uh, letter. No, this is actually from the, the, the Silmarillion, I it, guess. It is a letter. It's it's included okay. at the front of many pressings of the Silmarillion. Right, yeah, right, right, right. Okay. Uh, I thought maybe we could take turns reading this, maybe starting with John. Uh, you may read the first snippet. Uh, David, you read this third and or second, and I'll bring us home on the third. All right. Feels like a second grade uh, reading class. <laughs> yes. He repents in fear. When the first enemy is utterly defeated, but in the end does not do as was commanded, return to the judgment of the gods. He lingers in Middle Earth. I believe they're talking about Sauron here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very slowly, beginning with fair motives, then reorganizing the reorganizing and rehabilitation of the ruin of Middle Earth, neglected by the gods, which is true. Uh, He becomes a reincarnation of evil 
and a thing lusting for complete power, and so consumed ever more fiercely with hate, especially of gods and elves. All through the twilight of the Second Age, the shadow is growing in the east of Middle-earth, spreading its sway more and more over men, who multiply as the elves begin to fade. The three main themes are thus the delaying elves that lingered in Middle-earth, Sauron's growth into a new Dark Lord, Master of God and Men, and Numenor Atlantis. All right, picking up, uh, they wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, and yet to remain on the ordinary earth where their prestige as the highest people above wild elves, dwarves, and men was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. Thus, they became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time, the law of the world under the sun, was perceived by them. They became sad, and their art, shall we say, antiquarian, and their efforts uh, and their efforts all really a kind of embalming, even though they also retained the old motive of their kind, the adornment of the earth, and the healing of its hurts. We hear of a lineage, uh, a lingering kingdom in the extreme northwest, more or less in what was left in the old lands of the Silmarillion under Gilgalad. Finally, many of the elves listened to Sauron. He was still fair at that early time, and his motives and those of the elves seemed to go partly together. The healing of a desolate lands. Sauron found a weak point in suggesting that, helping one another, they could make Western Middle-earth as beautiful as Valinor. It was really a veiled attack on the gods, an incitement to try and make a separate, independent paradise. Gilgalad repulsed all such overtures, as did Elrond. But at er uh, Erigion, great work began, and the elves came nearest to falling to magic and machinery. With the aid of Sauron's lore, they made rings of power. Power is an ominous and sinister word in all of these tales, except as applied to the gods. The chief power of all the rings alike was a prevention or slowing of decay, i.e. change viewed as a regrettable thing, the preservation of what is desired or loved or its semblance. This is more or less an elvish motive. But also, they enhanced the natural powers of a possessor, thus approaching magic, a motive more easily corruptible into evil and a lust for domination. So I want to sit and say that if you look back at the 30,000 foot view, these snippets are well represented in the first eight episodes of this Rings of Power work. Yeah. Um I think some of the middle chapters are a little different than, uh, you know, they, they could have been a little cleaned up, but like most of the stuff, like the fact that I'm not so sure if Sauron is lying or not when he's saying this stuff to Galadriel about healing the earth and about being regretful and about feeling like all that stuff is in the text. The elves kind of being, you know, I wouldn't say the elves in this age are righteous and, and what their intentions or what they're trying to do necessarily is. They're essentially going against the will of the gods and, and how things should decline and change. And they're resisting that. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was, like I said, there, that, and that's why I, I, uh, that's why I think that we're in a pretty good shape at the end of this season, even though, again, I wish things had gone differently here and there. Uh, the foundation that they've laid after eight episodes is very much in line of what I guess I was expecting from the show. And if they can just tighten some of the bolts that are loose, uh, I think they're going to have something really special going forward. Yeah, I mean, Aaron, you and I yelled a lot on the last Lorecast, but uh, this week there was no venting of spleens. We were yeah. uh, pretty largely positive on the episode because I think mm -hmm. that you're right. It did accomplish a lot of these goals. 
and it did set us up for a good season too. So I hope they can work out the pacing for next season. Um, I, I I laid down a controversial take on the on the last <laughs> lore cast where I said, you know, do we need the Numenorian plot line at all this season? Uh, because mm. really, all I I think it just kind of detracted from the other storylines. Um, but I think that they can fix a lot of this next season, especially if we get deeper into Numenor and the politics there and not just sort of using them as a set piece for other plot lines. Yeah, I noticed that some people didn't bounce back. Like I was listening because I, you know, I'm I I like listening to David Chin's podcast um, and he's been kind of like simpatico with how I felt about the second half of the season. But he never really turned around on episode eight. And I was listening hmm. to his coverage. It's like. You know, I think he was there's there's this kind of expressed disappointment that there's not a lot. There's not more complexity, you know, than the kind of good versus evil struggle. But to me, that's a hallmark of Tolkien writing. Like you're not ever going to get House of the Dragon. You're never going to get no. it. John's already a little bit comfortable because, you know, there's that uh, there's a couple tales where Tolkien really lets the uh, Halloween out. But by and large, it's going to be more of like there is a. Evil that might be tempted by good, but ultimately is going to reject its path for more evil. And there is good that might be tempted by evil, but it's going to stand firm and have their faith rewarded. And there's not going to be a lot of surprise deaths due to random chance and crazy shit. None of the you know main band of hobbits are going to be uh, killed. Uh, not not that they don't change transforms, but like you know, broadly speaking, other than Boromir who died because he gave in to corruption. Uh, you're you're not going to have the like you know Game of Thronesian just kind of body counts and swings, and that's fine. It's fine to have well told, gorgeous morality plays every once in a while. I think on the Lorecast, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is the Shippy test. So Tom Shippy, who's a mm-hmm. one of the you know pre- preeminent uh, Tolkien scholars, he talks about. You know, when you have a different medium, and he's he, this all came about in reaction to the Jackson films. When you've got a different medium, there are changes that you're going to have to make to make it work. And you have to think about then, are you in the core of the story at the end of that adaptation? And are the changes that you made, um, do they serve the purpose of, you know, keeping you in that core, but because of television, movie, whatever, you had to, you know, stitch some lines together, put some characters in different places and that kind of stuff. And I think with episode eight, I firmly am, personally, I'm firmly in the camp that they passed the shippy test with this season. They've given us exactly what we just all three wrote here, which is the elves are obsessing. They're freaking out. They, they, they need to figure out some sort of stuff. And we've got Salron who thinks he's, you know, you know, as he says, well, I don't see a difference between ruling and saving. It's the same thing to me. And then how that then turns very sour. And I think all of this stuff that we just read is is well within the core of what they gave us on the screen. And I think you have to contextualize this letter, too. I believe Tolkien wrote this to a publisher who he was trying to convince that the Silmarillion was vital to the Lord of the Rings, because at the time he was trying to publish the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion together. He wanted that to be a like a box set. Uh, and the the publisher said, look, I don't get it. You need to just break this down for me. Can you pitch me the story of the Silmarillion, basically? And this is what he gave us. So I, I think that this is a good a good way to look at it, but also it is a bird's eye view, and I don't think it gets to all the nuances that he wanted. But I, I, I agree that this is this is 
a a good thing to look at to show how the show is doing things right. The the publisher wanted hobbits. <laughs> he didn't yeah. want like a tome, a history of Silmarillion stuff. Yeah, but anyway. All right. Well, guys, uh, thanks a lot for being our guide uh, throughout the season here in the lower corner and uh, uh, holding down the the real serious he- uh, heavy lifting on lore down on over on your Lorehounds podcast. Uh, really appreciated. Uh, I've really benefited from your guys's analysis and details that you've been able to to put into the show. And now uh, it's time for us to sail west until next season when uh, hopefully the 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 valar will send us back to middle earth to complete our quest um until that day comes what uh, and people want to continue to listen to the lore hounds uh what are you guys going to be up to and where can people find you well we decided just sort of a on a kind of a quick reaction that we couldn't not talk about andor so we're going to jump into andor we should be releasing um, our first episode. We're going to recap episodes one through six uh, this week. And then we're going to jump in. We've heard some different st- structure, uh, how they're structuring the show. We might get three, maybe four podcasts in um, on the rest of the season. And then over to what's next, John, after that. We've got the White Lotus starting October 30th, and we're doing full coverage on that. We're doing a sort of a Bob Moose style recap and some uh, lore research background. Lore is in like, Real world lore now, history, Sicily, things like that. Uh, so it'll be not, you know, I've, I've loved talking about elves, but it'll be nice to ground myself in uh, in Earth for a little while. And then after that, the only other thing that we have definitively on the books is the Wheel of Time. And we're just waiting for Amazon to give us a release date for that. And then there we're going to go full bore. We're going to be doing John's read all the books. I'm the, you know, the audience proxy. Um, where I'm just coming into this pretty fresh. Uh, we both watched the season a couple of times. John's got the books, and we're going to do uh, lore breakdown, feedback, all that good stuff, episode reactions. Uh, we'll see how we structure the season once we start, but uh, expect full coverage from us there. All right. That's ex- pretty exciting stuff. It's a lot of, that's, that's a whole crop of stuff. Um, now it's time for me to do my outro. Now we will be back next week for a wrap up podcast where we're going to talk about like, you know, kind of our, our hopes for next season or fears for next season, try to get to see if we can f- get an idea of, uh, how long we're gonna have to wait for next season. Uh, I'm going to dig into this showrunner interview and see if I can find something to howl with laughter or gnash my teeth at. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we are, we are wrapping up the, the rings of power coverage. We'll be back of course, next season, uh, schedule permitting, uh, life permitting, all that stuff, but it's our intention to come back. Uh, if, but if this is, you know, you're 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 not quite convinced. You want to see where else the journey lies? A bald move. Please go to baldmove.com. That's our main website. You can follow our release schedule and what we do each and every day at twitter.com/baldmove. Uh, if you'd like to support us after all this, we'd appreciate it. Support.baldmove.com. And as far as us, what we got coming up next? Uh, we're still putting the House of the Dragons to bed. We got another week or two of that left. We have six more weeks of The Walking Dead. Yeah, that's right. We're still a podcast covering it. Uh, it's been 11 years. No, 11 seasons, probably 13 plus years. Uh, it's we're, we're going to end that. And then next year, we're looking forward to The Last of Us coming to HBO. We're looking forward to Foundation Season 2 returning to Apple TV. Looking forward to Severance. Looking forward to Yellow Jackets. Uh, tons of different stuff that's coming back and and new stuff, too best way to follow along is twitter.com slash baldmove uh dug too deep at baldmove.com if you want to get some final thoughts in for the season wrap up until then 
Uh, again, thanks to the Lorehounds for coming on to the show, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>